0: Welcome to the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine's Research Learning Series podcast, which focuses on helping you become a star research scholar. I'm Mary Haas, a medical education fellow at the University of Michigan and part of the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine team. Meet my husband and fellow ER doc, Nate Haas. And I'm Nate. I'm also an emergency physician at the University of Michigan. where My research interests include the ED-ICU interface and topics like DKA and cardiac
1: arrest. I'm bringing the education background.
0: I'm bringing the research background.
1: Hello, hello, and we're super excited to have with us on the podcast, on the Research Learning Series podcast of SAM, Dr. Jill Barron, who is a professor of emergency medicine, pediatrics, and medical ethics which I feel like is an academic hat trick, at the University of Pennsylvania, an NIH-funded researcher, and the past chair for the department at the University of Pennsylvania. So we're incredibly lucky to have her to discuss the hot topic of how to conduct emergency research under the domain known as exemption from informed consent, or EFIC for short. So welcome to the podcast, Jill. Well, thanks, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Hey, well, let's just kick this off with a story. And and really, who doesn't love stories, right? Share with us about your area of research.
0: Absolutely. So this all started when I was a fellow before this topic was even referred to as EFIC, Some people call it ethic, but we'll go ahead and use the word ethic today. So I was part of a big research team and we were studying the effects of anticonvulsants, specifically dilantin, on preventing post-traumatic seizures in children who had severe head injury. So we were doing this clinical trial and we knew we needed to give the drug in the acute stage of the injury. And there was no way we could obtain prospective informed consent because when we would go to approach these families in the emergency department, they were highly distraught. Uh, Makes sense, right, with the condition that their children were in. So this was back in the 90s, in the 1990s. And at the time, there were some federal regulations governing informed consent under emergency circumstances, but these were pretty poorly developed and poorly understood But investigators like me were calling for guidance because we knew this research was important and we wanted to advance the field around therapies for life-threatening conditions, such as the one we were studying, status epilepticus, and then other things you can think about in that category or cardiac arrest and shock, et cetera. So fortunately, the emergency medicine research community answered the call and we were led by amazing icons in the field like Michelle Byros and Roger Lewis and Tom Afterheide And they organized themselves actually through SAM and responded to this call and provided testimony and they supported the guidance that was being issued by the Department of Health and Human Services and the FDA. And that actually resulted in the regulations that we have today. Of course, they've been, uh, you know, they've been updated and revised and sent out for comment multiple times, but this is exactly what we are operating under today. Now, these people were my early mentors. So I got involved in this effort as a fellow, and then I went on further to conduct several clinical trials using these regulations. I also decided that I wanted to get a master's degree in bioethics. I went into that mostly as a kind of a teaching enhancement. I was interested in clinical ethics topics, but I came out on the other side being really, really interested in research ethics. And as part of that program and as part of the work that I was developing with my mentors and kind of emerging as a, you know, an independent researcher, I began to develop some methodologies that helped other investigators figure out how to conduct this kind of research.
1: That's great. I was reading through all your papers involving EFIC or EFIC, now that I'm just going to perseverate on that, Uh, but I had no idea there was such a long legacy and history trying to develop the complexities and infrastructure that were needed to get this going. I just assumed it was always there. But there is a fairly a recent history, it sounds like. So obviously, since I'm kind of new to this concept, uh, can you kick this off maybe with some foundational principles that we can talk about? Specifically, maybe we take about it from a devil's advocate perspective. because Right. You can see some smart Alex, the budding researcher who's going to say, well, isn't all emergency medicine research emergent so I can just ask for a waiver of consent on everything? Wouldn't that make things way easier? What are your
0: thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a great question, Michelle. And one of the most challenging aspects of conducting research under ETHIC is figuring out what actually qualifies. So you can't be a lazy investigator and just decide that this is a convenience and we can forego asking research subjects and their families for prospective informed consent. It's actually something you have to think long and hard about. You've got to think about the study population and the study design and the research question that lends itself to this situation. The whole point about this is that you are not asking for prospective informed consent. You're taking away something that is a fundamental part of the research process in respect for autonomy and the capacity that uh, research subjects have about whether or not they want to participate. So the whole idea behind ethic is to provide these additional special protections to these potential research subjects. Because when you think about it, They are very vulnerable because of their condition. Anybody that's been severely injured or has a severe illness or physiologic destabilization, these folks lack the capacity to provide prospective informed consent as a result of this condition. And that's why EFIC is so important as it weaves in these special protections in addition to certain criteria that have to be established in order to conduct a study underneath them. So I'll go through for you what those requirements are because that really is the beginning And then we can talk a little bit more about those additional protections. So the first requirement for conducting a trial under EFIC is that the subjects need to be in a life-threatening condition. This is not your mild asthma attack. This is not, for example, an infection like a strep throat and somebody's got tachycardia and maybe borderline hypotension. These are people who, again, are in some sort of situation where they have a life-threatening condition. So the second criteria for doing a study under EFIC is that your available treatments need to be unproven or unsatisfactory. So what this means is that you've got to go back and look at all the preclinical studies and other studies, other information information that gives you a strong rationale for why you need to test this particular treatment under ethic, right? You're, you're trying to advance something about the care for the condition that you're studying. So you can't have a whole bunch of treatments already readily available to help subjects in this condition. The third thing is that you need to do research to determine the effectiveness of this therapy. You can't go back and just look at things retrospectively by doing a chart review. You've got to really conduct prospective research in order to determine how effective it is. You also have to be able to demonstrate that the informed consent process is not feasible within the therapeutic window. So what that means is I'm giving this drug and I need to have a specific amount of time to demonstrate that it's going to work. Can I obtain informed consent within that time frame? So usually when you're testing something for a life-threatening condition, You want that to work quickly, and so that therapeutic window is going to be necessarily narrow, and that's where you're trying to demonstrate whether or not informed consent is going to work within that very narrow time frame. And then finally, you must be able to demonstrate that there's the prospect of direct benefit to the subject. This can't be something that you're going to apply to future populations down the line. There's got to be some reason why that patient right there in front of you, that research subject, is going to benefit if you're giving them that investigative therapy.
1: Well, I can only imagine how much more complex it is, because I saw a few of your papers involving pediatric patients, that there's another layer of ethics about getting consent from their guardian and their provider who may or may not have showed up at the scene while the child is seizing, for instance. So these are uh, important five benchmarks here that you mentioned in terms of inclusion criteria for EFIC. You mentioned some other things, but what other additional protections are there since this is such a vulnerable population where they potentially cannot opt out at the scene? What other additional protections should there be in place?
0: Yeah, this is the really important part of, you know, getting yourself together as an investigator who wants to work in the field of doing trials under ethic. You've got to conduct a lot of pretrial activities that help the IRB to understand what kind of additional protections you are doing because you are taking away that opportunity for people to provide prospective informed consent. So probably one of the biggest ones that's talked about that there's a lot of research on it and people have heard about it is this thing called community consultation. And this is a process by which investigators go out and consult with the community about the acceptability of the trial that they are going to do before the trial ever starts. They're gathering information from different community members, from representatives of the community, from people that might have the disease that's being studied, maybe even from people that live in the geographic area where the trial is going to take place. And they are gathering this information in a number of different ways, and they're bringing it back to the IRB to talk about whether or not this is something we can do in our community in order to advance the knowledge around this particular um, disease using this trial. So that's a very, very important part of ETHIC, and it's also one of the most time-consuming processes and also one of the most costly processes. So this is where a lot of people get tripped up in doing this research. And it's also the area that a lot of us ETHIC investigators have really gotten a lot of intellectual energy around. We've we've all been interested in what are the best methods to do this? What brings us the best information about whether or not something is acceptable in the community in order to do the trial? We also do something called public disclosure before and after the trial. This is different than community consultation. Community consultation, as you might imagine, is kind of a two-way dialogue where we're going and asking questions and finding out what the community thinks. Public disclosure is more about transparency. This is about telling people what we're going to do, and then telling people the results after it's done. But we don't necessarily get back a lot of information. This could be something like a newspaper advertisement or perhaps a public service announcement on, you know, a television station, or even flyers that are put up in the hallways of hospitals. But we don't get a lot of information back, but we're just telling people what we're doing. And then there's some other things that are important that you might imagine are part of any research process. For example, you have to have an independent data monitoring committee that looks at your results as you go along. You also have to have a process that... If somebody comes in and you're about to enroll them under ethic, you want to figure out if somebody's right by that bedside, somebody who can help to make an informed decision about whether or not that research subject should be enrolled. That's somebody that we often call a surrogate or a legally authorized representative. And you have to have a process that you have to ask them in lieu of enrolling that subject under ethic if it's feasible and appropriate. And then finally, there's got to be a process that you do in the pretrial time period to provide an opportunity to object prior to enrollment. So that could be something like, uh, you know, hanging up a sign in your emergency department when you're doing a trial like this and informing people that, hey, if you come back in tomorrow with a cardiac arrest and we're doing this study, we could enroll you under EFIC and here's a way that you can tell us right here, right now, that you might not want to be enrolled under those circumstances. So that's another one of these additional protections.
1: You know, as you're talking about these additional protections... I had no idea about thinking about the cost of all of this, not from a financial, just a financial standpoint, but even a human resources and effort standpoint. It sounds like a lot of work specifically with a community consultation component on getting the message out, because it's a lot like, in fact, like social media and what I deal with, which is you can blast all the information out and you really hope it sticks. You really hope people read it and understand what is about to come down the pipeline. But share with me some some kind of negative aspects of this. Are people on board with this approach on getting the message out and making sure people are aware of this new study that's coming down? Well,
0: not necessarily. We have sometimes a lot of detractors. In fact, one ethics study I did, we had a hotline available so that people who saw some of our public disclosure messages could have a way to contact us and give us some feedback. And you can't imagine some of the messages that we had left on this answering machine. (laughs) Things like, you know, you're experimenting on our children and, uh, you know, all kinds of sort of accusatory statements about doing research in a very unregulated, very unethical way. And of course, we were not doing things that way. But people misread it. They don't have context for it. When you have an opportunity to really sit down with communities and talk to them about what you're doing... I have found, in many circumstances, people rally to the cause. They're actually excited and they want to support your research. So let me give you a specific example of that. When we did our status epilepticus study through our the PCARN network, the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network, we were studying two different drugs in the setting of a status epilepticus to see which one was the most efficacious and the most safe. And we worked with focus groups of parents of children that had long standing seizure disorders, some of whom were incredibly impacted by having hundreds of seizures a day. And when we got in a room with these folks and we explained what we were doing, they couldn't have been more coming from a position of advocacy, they were in huge support of this research being done because they recognized that we had not been able to move the field forward without doing research like that. So they were quite okay with the research being conducted under ETHIC once they really understood how we had to study these drugs and became very, very supportive. Whereas if you just tell people, I'm going to give you something without asking your consent or permission, of course, you might get a backlash and an unpleasant reaction to that.
1: So question, how did you actually reach the parents or the providers or the guardians of these patients? Like, did you go to seizure clinic? Did you go to the neurology clinic? Do you go to community events where you're a piece of the agenda? Or is this like a standalone thing? You just invite everyone to come? We did all of the above. (laughs) All of the above.
0: (laughs) We went to libraries. (laughs) We held meetings in different towns. We talked to uh, our neurology colleagues, and we were able to send research coordinators into clinic and have one-on-one interviews. We went into emergency department waiting rooms and talked to folks. Um, We did everything we could to reach the community in the best way possible, and that's really a big part of this process.
1: Wow. It sounds like everything short of a a lemonade stand. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So now getting back to your study that you mentioned about the pediatric status epilepticus, I can imagine the complexities there. Share with us some stories about potential roadblocks that people might encounter if they were to do something similar. Sure. Well, you just heard about the
0: time that you have to invest and spend doing that community consultation piece and that public disclosure piece before the trial. But we even have to take a step back even further and think about you know, who's regulating the research at a particular institution and are they going to grant you approval even if you do all these activities? And one note of caution is that you have to be really, really patient if you're an ethic researcher. The process can take, oh, I would say at a minimum four to six months, but it can take as long as a year or even more. Uh, When we were setting out to actually develop this trial, this was what I'm talking about now is our randomized controlled trial of diazepam versus lorazepam for pediatric status epilepticus, the one I mentioned that we had done through PCARN. We knew that those two medications had never really been studied, and we did not know which one had the best efficacy and safety profile. So at first when we were talking about this study to our different IRBs at our institutions and even the FDA, they didn't feel the study should go forward because they were under the impression that, oh, there's plenty of time to conduct an (laughs) informed consent conversation with the family of a seizing child. And of course, you know, these are not folks that are in our environment. And so they asked us to do something that was very unrealistic. So they wanted us to get pre-consent from families to be in the study before these children ever had an episode of status epilepticus. So you can imagine trying to have a crystal ball and figure out who's going to seize down the line. Well, that's virtually impossible. So how would we consent the universe of children that, number one, had seizure disorders, but how about those that we didn't know were going to ever develop a seizure disorder, right? So (laughs) essentially, we would have to obtain this pre-consent from pretty much everybody in in our entire, you know, service area. So we knew that that was, right, that was going to be unrealistic. And we went back to them and said, you know, we can never answer this research question if we do it this way. And if you think it's important enough for us to answer this question, we really need to talk about conducting this study under ethics. So, you know, going back to them with some data, talking about what really happens in an emergency department, what is our interaction with families? How do you do research under these conditions? Eventually they bought it and they understood that families would no way be able to participate in some kind of meaningful, informed consent discussion due to the, again, the very narrow therapeutic window that the drug had to take effect, as well as the emotional nature of the situation. So once they came to understand that, we pursued it. We were very strategic. We went through the different IRB review process at different sites. And, you know, some IRBs still turned it down, some approved it. But in the end, as I mentioned before, the community consultation process really yielded information that was very, very supportive about the study going forward. So we were able to complete it without incidents. And the point I want to make is that if we hadn't persevered after that initial reaction by the FDA and the IRBs, study would basically have never been done. And we would have never been able to have the FDA label the lorazepam drug for use in status epilepticus in children. And that was really the crowning glory of our efforts was that we were able to get this out there and have appropriate labeling data around safety for these drugs in children.
1: That is so freaking amazing. You took on the FDA to get this done. I, I applaud you for this. The perseverance, you must, I would have been tearing my hair out probably by day two. That is amazing. But so let me piggyback on that. Let's say people, appropriately so, are inspired to do epic research, emergent research now that they've listened to this podcast, and they're starting kind of from scratch. And I'd, I'd love for you to hear, you know, the, the advisees and the mentees that you have under you doing research, what is some advice that you would give them in getting started with this? Like, are there things they'd be surprised by? And in my case, are there things that I will shoot myself on the foot with? Help me out. Absolutely. So.
0: I think the mantra that if you want to become an independent researcher in emergency medicine, take the long view. This is not something that happens overnight. You need to build a research career by having a series of graduated, mentored experiences and you know, opportunities to emerge independently, but you're going to do that in a gradual fashion. You're not going to bite off a big ethics study as the principal investigator in your first foray into research, right? So you're going to get involved in identifying people who are doing this work, maybe get involved in just observing it, being part of maybe an on-call team where you go in and you get Consent as part of the study. You can listen in on calls with investigators. It's really something that you very gradually get yourself into and figure out is this something that I want to devote many years to? Ultimately, with the payoff being maybe I'm going to come up with that original research project that I'm going to be able to do and conduct underneath these regulations. So definitely take the long view. I'm going to say it's probably about a 10 year time frame from the whole learning process to where you might become an independent investigator doing this sort of thing. So what I did was as a fellow. I took call, I enrolled patients in studies, I developed, you know, a confidence and comfort interacting with families and research subjects who were critically ill and injured. We do this clinically, but it's a whole different ball of wax when you're sitting in a room and you're asking, you know, hey, can I give you an experimental agent? And I don't know if it works or not. I think it has the prospect of direct benefit and your loved one is really gravely ill. You know, you need to be able to talk with some kind of authority and confidence when you're having that kind of conversation with a family. So, you know, that can be very daunting to do as a trainee or even as a junior faculty member. So you want to watch people in motion who are doing this sort of thing. And then you also want to learn from people who understand all the regulatory elements of research. So all that interaction with the IRB that I was describing and the FDA, that's going to a while. It's That's a dynamic that you have to learn how to go about in your own institution. Institutions have <laughs> IRBs that have different flavors and different personalities, and some of them just need a lot of education. And some of them have never really done studies that have operated under these regulations. So you take kind of the role of the teacher as the investigator, and you're helping others in the institution understand what you're trying to do. What comes to mind, experience I had was I did the very first EFIC trial um, at the University of Pennsylvania, and I got a little call one day from the chair of our IRB who said, the vice provost for research would like to see you in his office. And I Went, oh my goodness, Uh you know, what could I have done wrong? We haven't even (laughs) enrolled a patient yet. And it turned out that the IRB chair was quite willing to work with us and wanted to see this research go forward, but felt that it. Perhaps had enough risk to the institution from a kind of a public relations standpoint that he wanted me to discuss this at the highest levels. And I did go and have that conversation and I got a lot of great support and they were excited that we were going in this direction and they believed that it was important for advancing knowledge and patient care. But, you know, it, that you might come up against something like that, where you're bringing something very novel to your institution, and you really have to be able to defend it and talk about
1: it at the highest levels. <laughs> Definitely to roll with the punches, it sounds like. Well, thank you for paving the way for really a whole domain of research on emergency research uh, using the ethic regulations. Let's uh, bring the long view back home and just leave our listeners now with three key learning points. And this is kind of what I took home from this, which is one, ethic research is a team sport, not to go it alone, because these clinical trials that are performed under ethic, they're super complex, they can get expensive, and they need buy-in from a lot of leadership up and down the chain. And to really get buy-in from and potentially collaborate with scientific and human subjects co-PIs... The second is to get IRB buy-in and every IRB is a little bit different so see what yours is like but it's critical for getting approval and oftentimes that means as a ethic investigator you may need to help them understand the process a little bit better because now you've listened to this podcast, you've called Jill at home for advice and you might need to guide them through what has been done successfully in the past. So it pays to have an early conversation with them as you're working on your protocol. And the third is to really be brave hearted in this you're looking at true knowledge translation but be aware that there's some ethicists out there maybe some fda members who just still don't quite believe in this research so just be strong in where you are this just sounds like it's really the right thing to do people are going to challenge you but be strong so that wraps things up with Dr. Jill Barron, our discussion of exemption from informed consent. Thank you again for being such a torchbearer for us and our specialty in getting the ethic regulations passed through It's really a landmark event in emergency medicine research. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Michelle. It was a pleasure to be here. And I and I will tell you that I am more than happy to serve as a resource for anybody that wants to take this. Oh, one. you heard it here. We'll leave the phone number in the podcast show notes. Thanks, Jill.
0: That's a wrap for today. Thank you for listening to the SAM Research Learning Series podcast. Subscribe to our Academic Life and Emergency Medicine podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes to catch the next episode. See you next time.